My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post-Cred Pod. We've got a lot of great news, a lot of big things happening in Loki this week. But before we dive into all of it, Eric, you have finally caught up and seen F9, clearly the most important entry in pop culture this week, obviously, oh, right? Caught up, caught up. I saw it before you, cuz the people have seen it now. Oh, right, right. I forgot. You're absolutely right. You yeah, have so seen it. That's my fault. That's my I fault. I figure that we can't let this show be all MCU talk, so... <laughs> I figure you're right. F9 is probably the biggest thing going these days. What it makes 70 mil made 70 mil open weekend. And as of this recording, I think it's up to like 86 or something. And so I just wanted to talk about not so much the movie itself, because a for the folks out there who, who haven't seen it yet. And B, because the details of these plots are generally interchangeable. <laughs> uh, so I thought we should just talk about the fast franchise as it, currently exists and what i want to ask you is do you think that the success of it or or not so much the success but how well liked they are not so much in terms of dollars but in terms of how much movie fans actually like the film do you think it boils down to you're either in or you're out like if you're out on fast five through seven or eight right are you gonna go see fast nine and be like this one's got me. <laughs> this is this is the one that's changed my mind. Or if you've been a fan since the start, is there anything that's going to bump you off course this deep in? I think it's such a smart delineation that, that you just made because it's not like a Marvel or Star Wars where you're like, oh, I, you know, I love phase one, not a big fan of phase two. Or like the sequel trilogy really thrilled me. The prequels suck. It's, it's not really a mix and match like other major franchises are. If you're in, you're in. And and as I'm sure you've come across not only everyday fans and audiences, but people in our field, you know, our peers and contemporaries, if you're out, you're fucking out on Fast and Furious. Uh, I think I'm a little bit of an exception because I'm someone who kind of learned to like it over time. But at the end of the day, I think it's more or less the most black and white franchise we have. And hold on, I'm just pulling up the Rotten Tomato scores for the franchise as a whole, because I'm curious. Surprisingly, the earlier ones have worse scores than the latest, like, bombastic, over-the-top ridiculous ones. So F9 currently has an uh, 60% critics and an 83% audience. F8. Fate of the Furious, yeah. Fate of the Furious, 67% critic, but 72% audience. So fans like this one more, 82% Furious 7 across the board. So that was the last one that was really a critical hit. And that was, and and if you include Hobbs and Shaw, what is that, three films ago? So I guess the point I'm trying to make is where does the franchise go from here, both in terms of the upcoming films, like how it's going to conclude itself (laughs) now that it's at this such, like short of them saving planet Earth, I don't know where they go from here. Like Fast 10 is pretty much just going to be a reboot of Armageddon. And then they're just going to, start from there you know what i mean so like where do you think that this where these films conclude and where do you think the franchise itself goes from here because just because they're stopping with the quote-unquote fast saga doesn't mean that universal is prepared to let the fast brand die here i I mean we've got two more fast saga films which vin diesel recently said 
was part one and part two, which, which is already off the back, just a huge LOL right yep. immediately. Yep. We've got most likely a Hobbs and Shaw sequel, given that it made 750, 760 mil. We've got the long rumored and uh, reported, though there hasn't been much develop, development, female-led spinoff in the Fast and Furious franchise. Which now is that's like interesting. Yeah, that, that could be cool. And we have uh, the currently uh, airing animated spinoff series. So Jesus. it's not as if this franchise is ending. It is going off into different directions. The question is, does it run out of steam? You know, critically right now, this one seems to be one of the, the least like ones of the recent batch. You know, does that support a next two You films? and I are both in line with that, I think, right? No? Like, I think it's a terrible movie that I enjoyed. You know what I mean? Because I knew exactly what I was getting into. Right. Um, so it's like, do, does it run out of steam to the point where audience anticipation and enthusiasm for every single branch of the Fast and Furious franchise is immediately, you know, kneecapped? And it's like, you know what? No more. No more dollars for this series. Now, that's structurally. To your question more specifically, where do they go from like a narrative standpoint? I, I kind of now want to see what you just said. I want to see an Armageddon, you know, redux with the fast guys. Of course, the big rumor out there is that it's going to uh, cross over with Jurassic World at some point. But you guys got to remember, Steven Spielberg has final say on the Jurassic World franchise. He's never going to let that happen. Good. Thank God. And then the last pen that I want to put in it is, do you think that the fast brand is more emblematic of the way things were or the way that things are going to be? That's, that's a great question, man. You're coming out firing today. Well, because I, I figure it. we got to, because the Fast franchise is fascinating because they mined original IP from themselves. Like it was some, it was one, it, when it started, it was one thing. They realized that wasn't working, scrapped it, started fresh halfway through, kept the characters, created a new entered it into a new genre intentionally. And then that genre became the fast brand fast is now a genre unto itself. Like it has taken the mantle of sort of the throwback mindless <laughs> action flick yet the scale and the franchisation of it is very modern day. Absolutely. And I'm just not sure how the, like nobody is gassed up about Dom the same way they are cap or Batman. You know what I mean? So they're going to need to find a new totem if they're going to, I, I think if they're going to keep it going to the extent that they want it to. So I'm just, and I just think it's got a, it, it's problem. And that's sort of my point is that it's this mix of the way things were, you know, it's star Vin Diesel's now 53. They're going to have is. him turn out to, he's not moving particularly fluidly in this <laughs> one either. So, you know, I'm just curious as sort of what Hollywood you think that this film sort of stands for. I'm always fond of saying that Universal fell ass backwards into the Fast franchise, but because they are the nimblest, most forward-thinking studio, they were able to strategically grow it into what it's become today. And they did that by expanding the demographic, becoming one of the first real mainstream big-budget franchises to uh, go after not only stunt casting with like big name stars and supporting roles, but a diverse cast. And they globalized it. You know, they've hit. 30 different countries in the last five movies. It was a really smart expansion and development of the series. But Universal is more so flexible than your others. They're not as monolithic as a Disney Warner Brothers. So they can kind of stop on a dime and pivot like that. So I think it is indicative of both. It's current Hollywood in the sense that they knew how to grow it for a modern audience and they knew what niches to attack. 
but it also they're one of the few studios who I think could fall backwards into that and yet still capitalize. I'm not sure the others would be able to. My question is an extension of yours now is, is there another franchise, another new-ish, recent-ish franchise that can go 20 years like the Fast and Furious? Or is that type of series just dead, you know? Because it doesn't really seem like we have a lot of options on the horizon. Not and, counting comic book stuff? Yeah, I'm, ta- I'm talking more so continuous. The, the Fast franchise after Tokyo Drift, why I don't call it a reboot is because they went back to the original cast. It was definitely a pivot, but it was not like a full-on reboot, like a James the Bond, franchise like a franchise I'm going to name is actually, you're the first, not the first one, but as far as I'm concerned, the one who has tied a thread between these two. Do you want to guess? No, I don't know. I don't know what you're... What you're Am I? About. Oh, yes, yes. That's true. So, like, that's sort of if they could figure out a new... Like, if they could just replace Tom Cruise and keep doing things the way that they've been doing. I mean, Tom Cruise, if he is human, which is still out... The uh, Jury's out on that. Yeah, jury's still out on that one. But if he is, you know, he, he cannot possibly go into his 60s. So that's a franchise that has gotten better and more expansive without dumbing itself down yeah, so he, they got two more of those and jeremy renner was once rumored to be the guy in the wings obviously that now. yeah that that didn't come out and nor do i think maybe he's the best choice even though i actually like jeremy renner but yeah. you know there, there's ways they can go with that franchise but you're absolutely right to tie those threads yeah all right well i'm excited to kind of see what happens even if you and i aren't the biggest fast fans it's just fascinating for the rest of the industry to see this yeah. unlikeliest of blockbuster mega bucks series. Yeah. I mean, nine movies at this point, I think that's the first 10 counting Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah. That is as expand, not counting again, MCU, which is a bunch of titles all roofed under one uh, roof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well said. All right. Moving on before we get to the news, uh, I finally saw Black Widow, so I did catch up to you. So in both instances, I was catching up to you. Well played. I well played on that. Uh, I, I agree a lot with what you said originally a couple of weeks ago. You guys should check that pod out. We had a good conversation there. I think while this was enjoyable, fun, used the found family dynamic to great effect for heart and humor, this was ultimately mid-tier MCU that felt inconsequential given the larger stakes that are surrounding it within the MCU timeline. And I think the movie would have benefited far greater from being released sometime in the 2010s when the character's fate and where we were heading in terms of scope, scale, and ambition weren't already predetermined. Uh, Florence Pugh is great worthy successor gotta keep her around for a long time david harbour is great movie solid kate director kate shorland should get another shot because i think she does a really good job but you know mid-tier mcu like i said i think i liked it like more than captain marvel less than ant-man somewhere in that range you know what i mean (laughs) good range yeah was that was genuinely kind of what you were saying too right when when you first brought it up pretty much yeah All right, elsewhere across the entertainment landscape. So like Eric said, it's not all MCU all the time. The Many Saints of Newark trailer finally dropped with Michael Gandolfini, James Gandolfini's son, playing the role of young Tony Soprano. Uh, I've seen a lot of kind of mixed reactions to the trailer. Me personally, Eric, I think this is the one instance in the history of the last 25 years where everyone's gone sequel, prequel crazy. We're doing an origin story about like the environment and inherited familial trauma that created a notorious icon actually makes sense. I'm like, that is a justifiable reason. I think this looks pretty good. Yes. In concept. It's 10 years too late then. Right. In concept, it sounds great. But like we talk about a lot on this show, concept versus execution. Casting his son goes one of two ways, right? (laughs) Yeah. 
it turns out that the kid's a star and and people's caps are blown back by how much he embodies his father and how good performance is, despite the fact that it's his first role, period. Or it distracts from the whole thing, right? This is a crime film where I would argue the character development slash performance is the most important part of it. I guess it's going to have all your traditional mob crime films. Go burn down this house. Go break this guy's <laughs> leg. Go steal this. Don't let, you know, don't let your mom find out, you know, all the traditional beats that we've come to right. know from films. Because as you just said, it's a, it's a, it's the making of an icon. People are showing up for Tony. So unless he knocks it out of the park, it's going to distract from the whole thing. Distract from something that looks very, I don't want to say under budgeted because the cast is very strong. And I don't want to say that because obviously they probably spent a good amount amount of coin on it, but it didn't look like, and I guess it's a um, a nature of the crime mob genre. You're not going to have any big explosive set pieces, but there was nothing in the trailer that caught my eye, right? Like, oh, I can't wait to see that part. So it really all comes down on this kid. And how well he pulls it off. If he does, I think it'll be great. If he doesn't, you know, it was directed by Alan Taylor, who's great on TV. He's done Thrones. He's done... uh, (laughs) Not so great on the film side. Sopranos and a bunch of great TV work. But on the film side, Thor The Dark World. And his other one was, um, oh, Terminator Genesis. Yeah, that was it. So, yikes. I mean, bottom line, yikes. But Many Saints is much more TV-esque than those two films were. So it'll be more in his wheelhouse. He's worked with uh, Chase Hunt throughout the years. I'm sure they worked hand in hand in this. So that's what I'm saying. You know, you have all of this stuff in flux with all that moving parts. It comes down to, does the one constant, the lead, hit home? Because when it was announced that Michael, uh, James Gandolfini's son was playing him, on paper, that is the most amazing emotional uh, conclusion that we could get. But if he sucks, it undercuts all that goodwill immediately. And you're yeah, like, well, plus, you guys like, fucked up. You're not going to find somebody who looked like the, a young ver- I mean, fi- I mean, you could find someone that looked like a young version of him. But like if you get a star name in that role, it changes the entire not narrative, but hype like, oh, he's taken over the role of Soprano. You know what I mean? Like it would it's have a whole this, different like, ballgame. Yeah. So but that said, if he fucking crushes it and makes himself a name then it will be good. Then that's just an added layer of hype to the film. So like you said, double-edged sword here. Yeah. All right. Ethan Hawke has joined the cast of Knives Out 2, which began filming in Greece this week. Eric, we've got Catherine Hahn. We've got Dave Bautista. We got Eddie Norton. We got Kate Hudson, Leslie Odom Jr., Janelle Monae, Jessica Henwick stacked. But in your opinion, how does that compare to the first Knives Out cast? Fascinating one. I should have done this before to try and find a, like a data point that we could use. And we should have tallied up the Academy Award noms or something. Yeah. But I think I think Knives Out 1 takes it, especially considering the star that Ana de Armas has become since, right? Like that sort of solidified her as like the next big thing. So Chris Evans... Daniel Craig, who's returning, of course, but our boy, Michael Shannon, Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis, Lakeith Stanfield. So Tony Collette, Tony Collette, who's just who's a, who's the best in everything she's in. So Christopher good. Plummer in one of his final film roles. Yeah, I'm going to go with the first one, but that doesn't 
that doesn't make me any less hype for knives out too or it's crazy. absolutely i i agree i think probably you go if you go uh you know back to back edward norton is probably the best actor of everyone that we just mentioned but i think overall knives out one cast has yeah it's, it's got our it's like got our bro crush chris evans it's just hard for me to like you know that sweater did so much talking i, I know now i saw i saw a theory in a tweet i forget who tweeted it because i just scrolled past it quickly but someone tweeted that they think ethan hawk is going to be the guy who gets killed uh i could definitely see that particularly since his casting, casting was very hush hush yeah yeah, yeah. And, and he's got to gear up for moon knight Right, exactly. So, like, you know, I, I could see Ryan Johnson calling him and be like, hey, man, we need you for, like, six days. Can you do right. it? And he's like, yeah, yeah gotcha. In, in Greece, no problem. <laughs> and it looks like he has a man bun, too. So, like, you know that guy's getting killed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the quick hitters. Kevin Feige confirms that uh, that is Abomination fighting Wong in the Shang-Chi trailer. How'd you feel about that uh, revival of, of the character that's been rumored to be coming back for a long time but has not yet made his appearance? I mean, am I going to sit here and act like I pump my fist? Abomination. Yeah, but is it just like a dope flex of them? Like, hey, remember this guy from our second film who we haven't <laughs> talked about in close to 15 years? Bring him back. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Like, that's just. I cool. agree completely. Uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, John Wick 4, and Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom began production. Eric, super quickly, rank your excitement levels. Number three, Aquaman 2. You know, I really don't care. Uh, number two, I'm going with Black Panther 2. Uh, and number one, I'm going with John Wick 4 because not only are the John Wick films getting better and better, but the additions to this cast in this fourth one are fucking outrageous. I'm going Black Panther 1, John Wick 2, Aquaman 3. First two, I'm super hyped for Aquaman 2. I just couldn't care less about. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The Halo showrunners are leaving after production concludes, and they'll have to get new showrunners, presumably, if they renew it for season two. Uh, this project has basically been cursed for more than a decade. <laughs> and while I know it's a beloved IP and I know it's a big budget swing for Paramount Plus, anybody who's a fan, I, I really would not get your hopes up. It has just been one tumultuous clusterfuck after another for this show. I don't understand how they fucked this up so badly. It's unbelievable. It, it really doesn't seem it's like one of the most iconic hard. games of the last 20 years. Like, like if you were born in the 90s, that game is definitive for you. And they just keep continuing to make false starts left and right. I know, I know. Good luck. But, right. but I did over the weekend crush fending Jacob, and it was nice to see Pablo Schreiber, I think his name is, yeah. do, do something where he's not just playing a brute. Yeah, totally. That's a great call. It's a really, really great call. Solid miniseries right there. Yeah, re yeah, it was good. Apple TV Plus, man. They're, they're, they're coming. They're sneaking up I'm on hyped folks. for Coda. Coda looks pretty good. Coda looks really good. I'm really excited. Uh, Amazon has renewed Good Omens for a second season. Have you seen the first season, Eric? Solid, enjoyably too gone. Much so TV out there, man. Back. Yeah, way too much to keep up with. Uh, Dwayne Johnson and Amazon have partnered on Red Nose, a Christmas Christmas themed concept that has brand expansion potential to Amazon's e-commerce platform. Eric, have we reached peak capitalism penetration of artistic entertainment with this? This movie is handmade to be an amazon like toy seller. commercial it's a it's a yeah it's a 90 minute long if we're lucky commercial brutal Jesus. the rock man our boy i mean like i get it like he's a brand yeah. on it to himself at this point and he's making money hand over yeah. fist. But i don't like, i don't I, knock that hustle but at what point do you draw the line he could have made that bread somewhere else like dude it, it just the the press release for it all just sounded like 
we're in hell. Like this is entertainment <laughs> hell. <laughs> oh my God. Well, we might as well just hand over all of our freedom and information to our new Amazon overlords. <laughs> uh, Timothy Oliphant. Dude, is- you tweeted and I wrote a post about it because I thought it was so funny. That quote from the Lord of the Rings guy, he was like, we've been here a very long time. I don't know <laughs> when we're going home. I thought that was hysterical. It sounded like a coded SOS. It sounded like a hostage situation, yeah. It was okay. bad. Uh, Timothy Oliphant is going to co-star alongside Tom Hardy and Forrest Whitaker in the Netflix action thriller Havoc from the Raid director Gareth Evans. That is a lot of yes in one sentence. It has taken 10 years, but his American breakthrough in the mainstream is finally coming. I don't know what he's been doing since the Raid came out. He's got a dope show, Gangs of London, London, that I've heard is great. I haven't watched it, but when the Raid came out, you would have thought, like, they're going to come banging on his door to give him any action franchise possible. I cannot believe. I mean, I would imagine that it was his choice because the Raid and the Raid 2 are two of the most unique and incredible action fighting films of all time. But it's happening, finally, because he signed a multi-year deal with them. So Yeah, because he, so he did do Apostle for Netflix in 2018, which I didn't see. But yeah, also, it was like a horror film. Yeah, I'm, I'm not into that, but I'm looking now. 79% on Rotten Tomatoes, 62% on Metacritic. So, you know, passable. Okay, But, good. but yeah, let, let's give this guy some beefier stuff. Speaking I agree. Of, uh, speaking of, like, um, under the cut, under the cut critical darling directors who are coming back out of nowhere to do a random bar film, Neil Blomkamp, District 9 director. (laughs) That's a horror film that comes out this summer. But I want District 10. Which he says he's doing. He's been been saying that for 12 years. It's called Demonic. And it comes out on uh, August. Like, this dude has been MI. He he just dropped three casual bangers 10-ish years ago. And now he's back. (laughs) Eh, I mean, I don't know. Chappie was awful. Chappie Uh, was the worst of the three, but... What was the they, other? Elysium was okay. They each got worse. But yeah. District Nine is one of the best sci-fi films I've ever District seen. District Nine's fantastic. Nine. And I want District Ten. And it's and it's it's remarkable in its ability to be heartbreaking over and over again. Fantastic movie. If you haven't seen that movie, watch it tonight because beautiful film. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld's making his directorial debut and live action feature film debut with Unfrosted about the invention of Pop Tarts. Uh, I didn't even know there was a story behind the invention of pop tarts. It's it's a uh, it's a stand up joke that he's been doing for years. It's sort of like not oh, so much the that makes a little bit more sense. Not so much the invention of them, but them like coming off the scene. Like he tells a joke, like you know, I was a kid and we had all these boring foods, and then one day, pop tarts showed up. So it's this whole bit he has, but um, I just find it fascinating that I mean, Seinfeld's in his mid to late sixties, and he's making his live action feature film acting debut, directing it first film appearance since the legendary B movie. What a random piece of news this was. He's I couldn't believe it. I, I, I could not believe it. I mean, you know how uh, stand-up comics get famous, then transition to movies and leave stand-up you know, forever because it's such a hard profession. Every single stand-up says Jerry Seinfeld is, is a stand-up stand-up. He loves it. He's in the clubs every weekend as a 60-year-old, yep. you know, I respect that about him. Bajillionaire. Yeah. Yeah. And lastly, Tobey Maguire cast in Damien Chazelle's Babylon alongside Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. It's his first role since 2014. Very interesting timing, as you noted in our outline, oh, which I agree with. I wonder, I wonder what, dare I say, shook the cobwebs off. And just beyond what connection that could have, I'm super excited for the next Damien Chazelle movie, particularly as this big budget 
uh, original feature about the glory days of Hollywood with an absolutely stacked cast. So really interested in multiple layers of this let me, project. Let me tell you this, Brandon, and let me apologize to Damien Chazelle because I was very late on his hype. Of course, I had seen Whiplash and I had seen La La Land and I both thought that they were great, but I didn't watch First Man for the first time until this past year or so. And it's beautiful. And he's fantastic. And it's you want to talk about someone, you know, not so much Neil Blomkamp, but you want to talk someone who's gone three for three. This dude has gone three for three. And now he's got uh, two of the five most movie star-ish movie stars that we have in the game leading his next film about the golden age. Hollywood, this is like Mank if it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, that needs to be like the subject thesis statement of this entire pod. That's great. I, I, I couldn't be more excited. I agree completely. Damien Chazelle, again, still only, I think he's like 35 now. So, Ridiculous. you know, wunderkind. Yeah. All right, you want to move on to Loki, my friend? Because this was the best episode. We were, I love how, we, you know, like I wonder how most writers do their reviews. I don't read a thing. I write my piece first and then I'll go online and read. So I was glad to see that you and I were once again on, on the same track. I, I'll say this a few times during this pod. I only not only thought that this was the best Loki yet, I thought this was the best MCU television episode period, right? Like when we think of great TV hours, I think of Leftovers, uh, uh, the one where Kevin goes to that like uh, space. Metaphysical purgatory. Yeah. I think of, you know, those handful of thrones or from Lost, the uh, constant, you know, there are those ones that stand out where in a vacuum outside of the show itself, you're like, this is a beat for beat, note for note, perfect episode of TV. And that's what I thought this was. I think this was an excellent episode of TV. And it seems like the general consensus is that like, okay, Loki's arrived now. All right, let's jump into it. So still marooned on Lamentous One after last week's episode, mere minutes before its destruction, Loki and Sylvie engage in the type of real talk, Eric, that only the doomed can truly understand. She tells them all about how she was arrested by the TVA when she's just a mere child and sentenced to pruning, but managed to escape. And from there, she spent her life hiding in thousands and thousands of apocalypses, unable to return to the life where she had been erased from the timeline. And the two Lokis, they bond, recognizing kind of their soul's counterpart in one another. And they form this very strange but understandable romantic connection. And their physical touch in classic time travel paradox fashion creates a nexus event, which begins to branch the timeline in a way the TVA has never encountered. They're also able to find them as a result. And so moments before annihilation, the TVA sends portals to Lamentus One, allowing Sylvie and Loki to escape, but directly into TVA custody. Uh, Eric, you and I have differing points of view on the on the romantic plot. So why don't you go first and I'll, and I'll say, you know, my bit and spiel in support of it after. Great. Let me just make a quick point because I know we'll probably move on from this year, but a point that I want to make, as I said, I think that this is the best Disney plus MCU episode yet. And this, and this one comes with something that we've been praising the Disney plus shows for so far. And that is the, the true and earned character development of the main character. So what I, I want to point out is the first thing Loki says in this entire hour is I'm sorry. Those are his first words. I'm glad you say that because I'm going to mention that later. 
considering where he's come from over the course of not only this 10 years, but in this show alone, that level, and he does this even more to a greater extent later where he openly admits his flaws. Characters actively apologizing for the way they are is rare in entertainment in and of itself, let alone... It's rare for human beings human in real beings life. In general, right? Let alone comic book storytelling. So, and that's why I think that that's why the MCU shows excite me so much, perhaps to an extent more than some of the films do at this point. You know, like I was looking forward to Loki more than I was Black for sure. the Widow. And that's because it's allowing for genuine explorations of characters. Back in WandaVision, I had no shame about saying, I didn't give a fuck about either of these two. <laughs> Their romance never made sense to me. I didn't believe it. That show changed my mind. This show is once again doing that. The character development of Loki in it of itself and what I wrote in my review. Which you guys can check on, out on BroBible. Check Bible. out on BroBible.com. Thank you, Brendan. Uh, is that, you know, the the knock against the MCU, the main knock has been that its villains lack a certain dynamism. So it's perhaps fitting that the character that was long thought of as their best bad guy is now tasked with redefining what a hero and what a hero's journey in the MCU looks like. And that to me is both a result of their macro long form storytelling that they've earned and the micro details and effort and work that this show has been putting in now that i've gotten that spiel done with you asked me about how i feel about the romance between loki's uh and as i've said it still off puts me but brandon <laughs> i know you <laughs> yo i literally have wrote down here because i I don't script myself, but I give myself like a like a bones of what I'm going to say. I have wrote down here that said, and you know me, I'm a sucker for sci-fi romance. So the idea of their physical connection being this multiverse shattering power, you know, is right up my alley. Like, oh, they've never seen a branch like that? Salt. <laughs> it is unprecedented and their connection is feeding that something special that is unbelievably powerful to the most powerful organization we've ever seen yeah so i mean you know wrap it up let's go home you know like that's all <laughs> folks that's what you know that's i've said it a thousand times on on this podcast that is my genre romantic sci-fi is my fucking jam so yes of course i enjoyed that it also helped that and because they probably weren't in motion and in action, Lamentus One looked so much fucking better. So not yeah. only are you getting the legitimate emotional conversation between the two of them, but the apocalyptic background was striking, stunning. So yeah, I'm glad that you said that you know me because that <laughs> you know that that scene was like stealing candy from a baby. <laughs> I knew you. I said I knew you were negative last week, and that's why I was coming with like the opposite because I'm I'm quite positive. But I also I was like, there's a colonel in there. I'd be surprised if he didn't at least give a chance to. And that's exactly what you seem to be doing, which I appreciate. So listen, I agree. It is so weird. Loki and Sylvie are variations of the same being, and as Mobius very accurately notes, it is this sick, twisted, romantic relationship. And then later he says, what an incredible seismic narcissist. And I do think even though that scene was probably my least favorite this week, I do appreciate that they mocked the very idea of it in world. Yes. They were aware of the ridiculousness. They weren't oblivious to what they were putting on the paper. Right. But I also think because of that arrogance and narcissism, it's kind of perfect. You know, in this episode, and we'll get to it more specifically in a second, 
the purpose of Loki's time loop punishment isn't just that he gets kneed in the balls over and over, though that's obviously an added bonus. It's also so he can further reflect on the choices that directly led him to that moment. And then by extension, zooming out, the inner flaws and insecurities that drive him in everyday life. So Loki, the series is all about a self-reckoning for our lead character. And here he recognizes that he craves attention, that he's a roaring narcissist, that he's afraid of being alone. So is it any wonder that Eric, he would fall for his morally right equal, or dare I say it, his superior. He, Loki is a character who has always needed structure and balance and a support system in his life to unlock his best self, as we've seen in like the more recent movies. Well, here is all of that, albeit in a very unexpected fashion. I'm okay with this odd twisted package. I'm interested to see where they go from here. Uh, and because the reason that I said that the sort of the redo of the interrogation between sort sort of like it, it was like an exit interview of sorts. You know what I mean? I found the verbalization of their romance to be very cringeworthy and not as palatable as the pure visualization of it. Them holding hands as yeah. the world fell or it, it was almost jarring going from a subtle beautiful moment at the end of the apocalypse to so, loki and then spelling it out for us exactly yeah. exactly so that's why i didn't like that scene so that's why it's key how subtle and deaf their touch is going forward they bash you over the head with it like hey you get it loki finally learned to love himself by <laughs> loving himself you know like fuck me dude like we get it but if they are able to treat the audience with intelligence and understand that the visual cues are enough. We don't need it explained to us beat by beat. So I'm curious to see how I feel about it come show's end. Hopefully I just wanna, they can keep it going. I just want to make one quick point uh, about their lamentous talk before we move on. Sylvie says the universe wants to break free. So it manifests chaos. This is essentially a headier version of when I joked a few weeks ago, more life, right? Yeah. The notion of limiting life's expansion, which is what the TVA does, never felt like a heroic thing to me. And this week confirmed that, right? Like we, we've got the full on confirmation that the TVA is, is essentially suppressing and controlling life. Like their brown suits this week looked a lot more Nazi-ish this week. You know what I mean? It just, it just hit. They just felt like more like a fascist sort of organization that show up put their rules in place and you're theirs now. So I, I think that that was a, a, a sort of great way of her explaining what exactly the TVA is doing beyond control. They are suppressing the universe's natural state of being. And that is more life. The entropy is what makes life worth living because the unexpected is what breeds the miracles and beauty of our everyday existence. Right, right. Over at the TVA, Loki tells Mobius that the TVA has been lying to him before Loki is then sent into that time loop where Lady Sith just beats the crap out of him over and over, which, again, as a visual gag, hell yeah, that worked for me. Yeah. Uh, Renslayer informs Mobius of Hunter C-20's death, though Mobius remains very dubious of her account. He pushes for more information, but Renslayer attempts to manipulate him with talk of friendship and a promise of finally meeting the timekeepers. You know, th this was so... Uh, this is so interesting to me because I I'm starting to think in the conspiracy sense, like who is Ren Slayer really? 
Why is she enacting the timekeeper's agenda to such a stringent degree? Is she, you know, an emissary for a fan favorite character that is we've she talked even about? In on in on the ruse. I, I my my thinking right now is absolutely, particularly by episodes end. She seemed genuinely shocked to find out that the time, like she when she walked out, she goes to see the timekeepers on her own and she tells Mobius going to see them is scary regardless, let alone when we're on the hot seat. So see, to me, I read that more as her putting on I'm, a little act for okay, him. because I was going to say in that scene, her body language is terrible. Like if you weren't sketched out by her before, she won't even look Mobius in the eyes. So there's red flags popping up left and right. I'm on the same page as you, though. I am curious the extent of her involvement in, in this whole thing. As we pointed out on the show, in the comics, Kang loves her. So maybe that is the route that they go down. Yeah, I, I'm so curious. And part of that is, too, you mentioned the other day that she has a pen in her office, the Franklin Roosevelt you know, high school pen. Today, in this episode, when they are having this conversation, Mobius is signing those, those papers. Before he gives that pen back to her, he does like a little double take at it. It's very subtle, but he's, his eyes linger on it. And I'm wondering, is she another variant who was abducted in that pen is somehow from her previous life? Is she a full-on I think that, No, I think, yeah, I, I think that's correct, but not her life, his life. That would be interesting. I, I would think like that. that. The other, the quote-unquote other analyst that got heard the rest of the stuff on her shelves is him just older versions of him that they had to wipe because the the older ones came to and realized that's why she like she won't that would be cool that's why they have a friendship too she she, she won't show him that like let him know who her other analyst is and given what we now know about her it would seem that she's just been cycling through mobius after mobius what a horrible horrible existence if that's the case yeah she's i feel bad for our boy and we're about to feel a lot oh. worse. Mobius continues digging, switching out their time pads and discovering that Loki was indeed telling the truth. TVA employees are variants. Meanwhile, Hunter B-15, shaken from her enchantment at the hands of Sylvie, takes her to the rocks card in 2050 in order to have a private conversation hiding in the apocalypse. It is there that Sylvie shows her the truth about her past life as a variant, which she even comments, I look happy. Though they don't know it yet, I found it very interesting that B-15 and Mobius are now set on the same path of resolution. And I also like this bit, too, because uh, a couple episodes ago, I mentioned that the Buddy Cop vibe, vibe at one point, it was going to be like uh, Loki being like, we tried it your way. Now we're going to try it my way. Of course, that didn't exactly come to fruition. But early on, it was Mobius, you know, towing the company line. And Loki stole Morbius's time pad in the first episode to try and escape. Now that Mobius is kind of enlightened, for lack of a better term, he he steals Renslayer's time pad. And it's a little nice, subtle characters learning from each other reversal that I liked. And he tricks her to do it. Yeah, that was smart. It was a little misdirection. It was a little mischief. Yeah, this is where, again, and this is sort of why this episode shined for me so much. I loved the almost political thriller-esque way that the knowledge of the TVA's true nature spread throughout, you know, one mouth to the next and the ideas that are growing and growing. It was almost like Michael Clayton-esque in tone, you know, (laughs) that overarching sense of you're being watched, but now you're aware you're being watched. Once the bell was rung, it was unstoppable and it only grew louder and louder as people began to, you know, once everybody, as soon as they heard you're being lied to, they immediately, it immediately caused them to reconsider their world. And once that sort of took that red pill, 
it's over. And that's why the TVA has to keep such a tight lock on things, because I feel like once you're remotely made aware of the fact thing, details that you didn't notice that were sketchy before are now as clear as day. Right. Uh, they do it with B-15. She's out in the hallway and they have a very specific shot of her looking at sort of the propaganda art that's on the wall. And she gives it a curious eye. So just the manner in which TVA employees became self-aware and how they were doing it under under the roof of the very organization whose nefariousness they're learning about in real time. You know, again, they're borrowing from, you know, they've, this has been a crime thriller show. I would say that this went more to like politics thriller, which was just an awesome change of tone. I had this point for the, for the next little segment of the episode, but you've just teed me up so perfectly. Never in a million years going into Loki, the show, would I have ever thought that the bureaucratic TVA would wind up being the most interesting element of the whole show. Like never. And yet that's what's happened. Exactly. Like you said, that's exactly. And that's why we both thought last week's was, well, I thought last week's was the worst yet because the TVA weren't in it. So that's sort of my spiel on that. And then just one quick point before we move on about the time loop jail, again, devastating and legitimate character growth. Loki admits he's a narcissist. Like again, that's unprecedented as I was going to say for TV, as you pointed out, for humanity <laughs> writ large. So, you know, it's it, it's the sort of space and growth that I think TV can only, that, that only TV can buy you. That you simply just can't get away with that in a film of having a having your main character sidelined in a time loop getting his ass kicked in order to learn more about who he is an effective cameo usage as well we all know how much marvel loves cameos this was a well executed use of a previous familiar character that played into the main character's emotional journey yeah I have a question, though, and and this part particularly brought it up for me now that the TVA is a little bit collapsing in on itself as people become, for lack of a better word, self-aware. Sylvie at this point. Sentient. Yeah, sentient. Exactly. She's a full on agent of good. She's trying to bring down a terrible organization. But I'm, I'm curious if there was any actual fallout from her bombing the timeline with reset charges in episode two. We never what the really fuck was saw... that about? Yeah, what yeah, the fuck? We never saw the consequences necessarily. We saw that it was branching, but we didn't see a response. We didn't see anything or, or get any explanation about what the TVA did about it. So if that's a drop threat, I, I think that's a, a little bit lazy and or ineffective storytelling. I hope they come back to what she actually did. Dude, you think that they're that the MCU would let a thread that big slide? I, I, mean, look, I hope not. Great point. I hadn't really thought about like, and that's sort of the thing too, right? There's a part of them that thinks, oh, we could let this go because people will will forget. We're throwing so much shit at them that they'll just forget. But I remember the distinct panic in the TVA. You know, their faces all go white. The timeline has been bombed. They have to explain that shit. They have to. What did she reset? What did she change? What's the follow? How do you repair it? Like, I they need to do something. She can't just bomb everybody. And I understand that that was also part of a distraction so she gets to the golden elevators. I get that. But there's still, you know, fallout from the distraction. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. I hope they touch on it. Anyway, Mobius comes around. He frees Loki from the time loop in order to bring down the TVA. But he's confronted and then sadly pruned by Renslayer. She brings Loki and Sylvie to the timekeepers, but Hunter B-15 intervenes. All hell breaks loose. And then it turns out that the three time keepers are nothing more than, quote, mindless androids. And they get into a fisticuffs. They, you know, they, the androids are destroyed and depowered. 
And then as Loki gathers this courage to tell Sylvie how he feels about her, Renslayer prunes him. And Sylvie, furious, demands answers from Renslayer. Eric, as many watching this show have been saying, and as you and I have been saying, the timekeeper's super sketchy. Now we officially get the Wizard of Oz-like reveal. We know that there is a puppet master pulling the strings and creating facades. For what reason? For what destination? For who that is? Obviously, we have our ideas, but we don't know. But this is the biggest reveal of the episode and probably of Loki so far. Uh, In a post-credits scene, we get Loki waking up in this kind of desolate, deserted region after being pruned by Renslayer and asks, is this hell? Am I dead? And he is met by three Loki variants, including what appears to be King Loki, played by Richard E. Grant, who tells him, not yet, but you will be unless you come with us. And he is joined by other Loki variants, a child Loki and what looks like a Viking-esque Loki. Eric, I said to you back in episode one or two, when they cycled through that kind of Tinder of different Loki variants, I was like, listen, I want to see them. I don't want to just get a little breakdown. I want them to, you know, actually interact with our Loki. We're going to be seeing a lot more of them too, Brandon. Hell yeah. And we are letting the converging variant timeline madness begin. This has got me so excited for episode five. Yep. People are saying that the world that he wakes up in looks a lot like destroyed New York after. Which uh, was also in the marketing materials. Yeah. So perhaps that's where his, I mean, I'm curious to sort of learn about where that purgatory-esque place is. You got to assume Mobius was sent to a similar place with various versions of of himself. Uh, This is what a good post-credit scene does, right? It's something that had they put it in the show itself, it would have sort of distracted from what was going on. But sticking it at the end, just as a little taste, a little teaser of what's to come. Perfect, especially considering the actor that they included, the visual of the different variants all standing there, the relief knowing that our boy is not dead, even though you probably didn't legitimately think that he died. Uh, Which, by the way, this episode is extra self-aware about. He's like, I've died so many times, it doesn't matter. Like, thank you. And then, of course, just every time that score kicks in, yeah, you just get gassed up. So my theory, which is cobbled together from comics knowledge and other theories, I'm not claiming this as like an original, is that it is indeed the New York of, you know, our timeline or our, our world. But it exists in the timeline in which Loki succeeded in conquering Earth. And King Loki is Richard E. Grant, who's learned the error of his ways, is trying to undo all the mayhem he caused. And somehow there's been other Loki variants that wound up there as well. I like that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, so a couple questions before we move on to awards and categories. Mobius name drops the Kree, which we know from Guardians of the Galaxy and Captain Marvel. He name drops the Titans, which Thanos is. He name drops vampires. So is this a clear and present allusion to Blade and or the greater kind of mysticism, crazy shit? Yeah, Moon Knight going on. You think this is more important than than just a little throwaway? Absolutely. I think it's the first mention of the word vampire in the MCU. I mean, obviously, I don't know that for a fact, but just off the top of my head, that's definitely how it felt. And he like, you know what I mean? He says it. The camera's locked on him. He enunciates. So I think I think it was quite obvious. Yeah. Like, oh, and that was a great take. We just need you to project a little bit more. We really need to get vampires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So you just touched on it for a second. Is Mobius still alive somewhere, sent to some type of apocalyptic scenario, or do you think he's dead and gone and pruned? No, I did predict that he was gonna die, but uh as soon as I saw the way his death went down, I was like, okay, he will be back. Because (laughs) while while it was 
it was painful in the moment, but just sort of the, I mean, and when you add on the reveal at the end that they aren't killed, they're just sent somewhere, but just the sort of abruptness of it all felt unworthy of character that this show very cl- clearly knew would become instantly beloved. We can't end Loki without Mobius on a jet ski. We just can't. Yeah, exactly. And then final question, we'll move your, on. Your theory is right. Didn't you say it's going to turn out that he's the guy who invented the... My, my belief is he, if he is indeed a variant from Earth, he invented the jet ski and yes. his past life was happy and he loves the 90s and it's all good. That's great. That would be great. I would love that. And then my last question before we get to the awards and categories, is Kang pulling the strings of the TVA? I think we got to go yes, right? I think we got to It clearly seems to be setting up as we reported previously, the rumor that, that Kang was going to show up in Loki, it really seems like we're closing in on some version of that reveal. Yeah. Probably in point, some they've unexpected told us, way. They've told us, as you perfectly put it, the Wizard of Oz of it all. They've clearly told us now there is a string puller. So you don't check off gun that unless you're going to, you know, do it. Let you know, use exactly. that gun later. Yeah. Come on, guys. All right. Awards and categories, the Infinity Gauntlet Award for the real MVP. I'm going with Loki himself for finally letting go, for finally recognizing there exists bigger and more important things in the universe than himself, his glorious purpose, his insecurity-driven anger. He's like a productive member of society now, like huzzah. Yeah, very good. Very good. He is. And I think that... Geez, is that the first time that we've picked the main character for the MVP award? It or might not. be, because we like to go with some under-the-radar choices. Uh, for my MVP, I'm going with me. Um, because I... Well, you're the, one of the main characters of this podcast, so there I, you go. I, right, there you go. I uh, I mean, it's not that I went that far out on a limb, but I predicted the Mobius arc to a T, right? Like how they would hatch this plan to take you it did. down from the inside, and they'd have to sneak through. Now... It all happened quite quickly, but and that he would die, of course. It all happened quite quickly, but once I became aware of how they were intentionally trying to make you empathize and root for and like that character, I saw his arc pretty clearly. Now, where it goes from here, I don't know. But up until this point, I think I had this beat pretty early. Yeah, you called this. I think you might have called it in our first Loki podcast after we had seen the first two episodes. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one or two, yeah. All right, the Thor The Dark World Award for Worst Performance. Eric, I'm going with fight scenes. The yeah, actual, yes. Yeah, the actual combat in Loki has been very subpar it's for the me. edits. They edit too much. They're cutting too quickly. They're, they're, they're editing and cutting too much, and I just don't think it's that good. Just flat out. Even if it was a continuous shot, I don't know if, Tom Hiddleston and and his surrounding character actors are as physically fluid, you know, particularly as compared to the kind of earthbound choreography of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and Black Widow, both of which sandwich this show. It is very step down for me in terms yes. of recent MCU Thank entries. You. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, I was going to say the CGI for the timekeepers, but that was <laughs> yeah. sort of explained. Uh, so I'm going with the time loop prison because that shit seems terrifying. Oh, he's like, you just don't want to be stuck in that? Yep. Nope. No, thank you. Get that out of here. Yep. I would be basically driven insane immediately, for sure. All right, the Mobius... Especially, like, one specific short moment, like two minutes, like a two-minute moment over and over again. Oh, my God. Do you have a particularly painful and or embarrassing moment that you think all-knowing omnipotent gods would send you to over and over? Uh, One that is... One that I could talk about on this show? Probably not. There have been times where I've 
perhaps needed things to work that haven't showed up for me. <laughs> Fair enough, my friend. Fair enough. All right. The Mobius Award for best Don't do drugs, kids. Don't do drugs. We are a positive, family-friendly podcast, except for all the heinous, disgusting shit we say and the curse words. Uh, the Mobius Award for best performance by anyone except the lead actor. Uh, I'm going with two. For me. I'm, I'm going with two. I, I would assume one of my two is the same one. Uh, one, me, Mosaku, for turning a nameless Minuteman TVA cop into an actual character. Really good job. And Owen and Wilson, again, for playing the role of a good man who realizes he's a part of something he's never fully understood until this moment. I just thought his uh, skepticism with Renslayer and his overall reaction and understanding of the full scope of the TVA Great job, Owen Wilson. You're the man. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for as long as the award is, for as long as the award is in his name, and for as long as we're talking about this show, he is penciled in each week. But I as well have, and you said it great, Wumi Mosaku, I believe, is, is how you pronounce that. Again, excellent job of portraying the growing suspicion and doubt inside her, and then simultaneously the desire to do the right thing gathering the courage to like literally you see her gathering the courage in in the hallway to go in to talk to sylvie the wrought emotional pain on her face when sylvie shows her her past life is top tier non-verbal acting she looks to portray oh i just found out i had a whole life and it looks beautiful like to do that <laughs> with your like to do that with your face dog like that that's a that, that's a tough feat so she, acting's hard man he crushed this episode absolutely all right the tony stark exposition award aka the star lord who award for shit we need explained to us this is too inside baseball and i don't think they're ever going to address it it's just for nerds to overanalyze like you and i i want to know the after effect of erasing a variant from a timeline so for example oh, removing boy. removing sylvie from asgardi her we, asgardian we home have as the a same one boom i love it like so does odin and frigga and thor not remember her like is she completely erased from that existence? And if so, does that mean the TVA is more powerful than the most powerful mythological figures we have? I, I wonder what the ripple effect is. Like, oh no, I never had a sister. I never had a sister, Loki. That, that never happened. Right. We have the same topic, but not the same specific. That was just my four example. Because I, I want to know Mine the is so. Sylvie says wherever she went, it created a nexus event because she's, quote, not ex uh, supposed to exist there, right? Mm -hmm. So unless they return Loki to the original timeline that ends in his death at the hands of Thanos. Which they said they can't already. Is, so then isn't that now his fate? That you just wrinkled my brain, dude. Isn't his fate now to exist in timelines where he's not supposed to be? Yeah, because remember he said I can't return. To, and then therefore is going to be a walking uh, event causer. <laughs> yeah, he he's essentially a dead man walking because he can't return to his timeline, which also confuses me. Because so then, what do they do to the new 2012 Avengers timeline in which Loki? Is no longer exists because we know he went back to Asgard to be held in the prison. Maybe they do need to put him back and he just has to accept. But he fate. said, he said in episode two, when, when he came to the realization, I can't go back to my timeline, can I? And he was like, no, you can't. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, so, I don't know. So, uh, I don't I, understand. Um, so then and those it, are the wonky mechanics that they probably won't explain. But but it's interesting. Uh, I don't know. I was going to say me thinks that'll probably be the final climax of this show. Where, where does he go? Like literally, where does he go from here? Oh yeah, from I mean, kind of character perspective, they have to do something. But 
like the the actual minutia of like variant mechanics is right. is the stuff that I don't think they're gonna sit down and chalkboard it like Rick and Morty does. Right, right. <laughs> All right, the time stone that real quick award, aka the rewind that real quick award, echoing what you said up top. I'm sorry. And then he says it again to Lady Sif. This is Loki fully realized and verbalizing essentially what the more fully realized Loki who died in Infinity War never got the chance to say. Right. But how we knew through experience had come to the side of the angels. Yeah. yeah. As I said before, while I wasn't a fan of the CGI last week, the landscape of Lamentus this week was gorgeous, both aesthetically, like how it literally looked in terms of color and shapes and sizes, but also from a purely sci-fi point of view. Great look at end yeah. of the world. The way the planet was crashing in piece by piece, like right on the horizon, just a conceptually and physically very gorgeous end of world scene. I agree completely. That that, that 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 whole design aesthetic was awesome. Yeah. All right. Put this in Odin's Vault Award, a.k.a. put that in the museum. I'm going to say conceptually common ground. And specifically, Mobius saying, I'm supposed to trust the word of two Lokis. And Loki saying, no, trust the word of a friend. Taking a leap of faith and betting on the good in others winning out. That is literally the most difficult thing to do in the real world particularly for someone who is extremely cynical like me, but it's also maybe the most important thing we're supposed to do in the real world in certain instances as humanity. So to see that play out in Marvel fashion, it really connected for me. And like you've been saying this entire episode, Eric, it showed the growth of Loki. And I just thought, you know, just a well done fine point in one single sentence. I'm going with the episode as a whole. I think it's the current, heavyweight champ of the Disney Plus show so far. This hour was of all the ones that they've put out so far, top to bottom, pound to pound, the strongest yet. Now the cap lifts the hammer award for best hero moment. I'm going to go with Loki spinning a yarn to Mobius and lying about how he masterminded the entire plot in an effort to subtly protect Sylvie, because that is to this point, one of the most selfless things he's done. Great call, Brandon. Trying, Love man. that. Trying. See? Marvel, it's about the subtle moments. While that scene was my least favorite, his intentions were subtly beautiful. Yeah, and I agree um, with your, your assessment. For me, I'm going with the, the Mobius's final, not final, but sacrifice speech where he's like, do you know where I want to be? I want to be where I came from in my happy life on a jet ski. Like, my fucking, my fucking dude. Mobius is the man. And then I'm going with B-15 showing up to uh, free the Lokis of their sort of time collar bends and and sort of of really saving the day because up until that point, they were fucked, yeah. And imagine the courage both for Mobius and B-15 to revolt against the organization you've been indoctrinated to and and you believe your entire, quote, life that you were created for, to have the not courage crea- to do that. Not only created for, but the knowledge your entire life of being taught, this is the most powerful organization in existence. <laughs> they stepped up. And, and again, like I've been saying, B-15 did it only with a stupid glowy nightstick. So oh, even more credit. Yeah. Uh, Eric, what is the worst thing you can say about this episode? Yeah, I mean, I've said it a few times. I think that the verbalization of the romance between the two leads is wonky. And if that's the road that they're going to go down. They're going to have to iron that out a bit smoother or a little less heavy handed with it. But generally, 
nothing because as I've said a few times, this was an enthralling hour of TV. Yeah. So for me, I am maintaining something I said in my initial review. Uh, WandaVision and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier both immediately had something to say, an organizing thesis, a grand statement that kind of directed their entire emotional weight. And sure, yes, Loki is telling audiences that they can be anything they choose to be, even a hero. But it is far more plot focused than its series siblings. I think it's great. This is my favorite episode of the show. And this is probably my favorite uh, show of the Disney Plus so far. But I'm not sure it's delivering any significant like moral rationale or emotional depth as heavily as the others. And that's okay. We don't we don't need every show to be the same. But I, I think it is a better plot show than the others. And the others had a better thesis statement. Yes. And, and again, though, as I've said, yes, theme wise, this isn't taking as big of swings. Right. Yes. But in terms of emotional resonance, I don't think that could be judged until it's done. We don't know how these two are going to play out. Loki, For all we know, there's going to be a what is love, if not grief, perfect, persevering final you know, word in love. Right. Exactly. You know, they're going to have this this romance they're going to trying to build is going to come to a head one of one of two ways either way it's going to likely define the ending of the show and where the characters go from here so i think like you know there's i think that falcon sort of petered out towards the end where i think Absolutely. this there's there's all the chance in the world that this could pick up from here and this was the best episode in episode four so i absolutely think we're on a, an incline yeah all right what's the nicest thing you can say Again, this is not only just good for Disney Plus TV. This is a like a TV, regardless of genre, a great episode. In the in the simplest definition of the word, great, truly great, stands out. To that point, I think that that mirrors what I'm saying. Franchise universe implications that feel more significant and bigger than any of the Earthbound stories recently. I mean, the consequences of Loki reverberate throughout the entire existence of reality. And the epicenter of that is indisputably one of the MCU's most entertaining characters who arrives at an emotional uh, uh, jumping off point here to hit the next iteration of who he is, which is presumably a good person. So to pack all that, I think this is the epitome of a multi-platform spanning blockbuster franchise because what's happening here on a micro and macro level pushes everything forward as well. Uh-huh. Forward and up. Yeah. All right, stuff we think is cool that needs mentioning. I didn't have any tidbits this week. Okay, I've got one. Uh, Ravona's TVA sort of code, how we, we've talked about C20 and B15. Hers is A23. Uh, Avengers number 23 is her first comic book appearance and also features Kang. Damn, that's a great deep cut. Uh. Damn, that further also uh, supports our theory. Sylvie asks Loki if what it means to be a Loki is that we, we lose, which is Destined obviously to, to fail, a harken right? back to Coulson telling him, you know, you lose. That's in your nature. You lack conviction. Uh, as you pointed out, Krees, Titans, vampires. That was the obvious one of the week. At the start, uh, when we meet young Sylvie, Sylvie mentioned the Valkyries on Asgard. She also has a wooden doll shaped like a wolf. That's probably Hela's giant pet wolf that we saw in Thor. And then finally, the Loki variants that we see at the end are old slash king Loki. Okay, so you have actual uh, 
the definitions of who they are perfect. I need this. Well, the the word is still out on him. We aren't sure if he's old or king, but he's some mix of the two. Uh, kid, Loki, Croc, Loki, and boastful Loki. Cool. All right. Nope. Boastful. Isn't Loki already boastful? Well, I guess this one's a real fucking prick. <laughs> Imagine a Loki that other Lokis think is a prick. I know, right? Oh God, God, I'm excited to see episode yeah, five. I, mean, I need yeah, it now. From here on out, I just I just think it's going to be chaos, full-blown chaos. Because now we have Lokis running together. amok. Yeah. Conspiring, yeah. All right, well, in the meantime, if you guys got any questions, theories, comments of your own, hit us up on Twitter at PostGradPod. Also, please leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps with our SEO. You can also drop us a note there if you want us to focus on any particular thing. We always check those out. So, you know, get at us, everybody. All right, y'all. Enjoy your 4th of July weekend as well. Absolutely. Everybody go get drunk and eat a hot dog. Yes, perfect. Right. <laughs> Until Peace. next week. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.